You are listening to Pod Save the Rest of Us. Thank you for tuning in. Easy going, easy come. Where'd you get your info from? I found mine on Reuters. Fact-checked by three sources that were fact-checked for biases and are equal opportunity employers. Well, didn't you make a fool of me between the peas and brisket and your sister? Off the rails, this goddamn conductor drove the train. Welcome to our Solid Ally series. Throughout this series, we will discuss ways we can all be better citizens for one another. In a shared humanity, we can accept and acknowledge systematic racism has been riddled throughout our American history. And we can learn and listen from others about this problematic history. But on a hopeful note, you and I can also take all that we learn and then we can roll up our sleeves and begin to do the work to build a more solid and empathetic America, leaving racism in our rearview mirror. Now here is our episode. We hope you enjoy it. So many times I've been asked to explain my ethnicity, and so I thought I'd do so before fully delving into this episode. So here's my little aside. My ethnic identity has always proven a bit complicated although a few people have a more ethnically discerning eye and can recognize my Latinx features. As a rule, I travel freely and more harmoniously in white spaces, as this is where I've been casted. So now, let's explain this reality, starting with my legal name, Elizabeth Romero Stanley. My first name and last name match how I present to people, which is quite white. European descent, of course. Pretty much all my life experiences help to maintain people's perceptions of my whiteness. But what about that middle name, Romero? Hmm, this causes people much confusion. I look white, and and boy do I struggle to obtain a tan with any note. Clearly, I'm melanin deficient, no question there. I also sound white, and I only know a little Spanish from that which I retained from the subpar Spanish teacher in high school, and by saying subpar, I'm being quite polite. Throughout my life, people have asked, so what are you? What's your nationality? What's your ethnicity? What, what about that Romero last name? Are you Portuguese? Italian? Spanish? You must be Spanish, right? Note all those would be the short answer. The long answer, well, from my mother, Rosalie Alice William Schultz, I obviously get my European genetics, and from my father, Dionisio Otero Romero, I get my Latinx genetics. I am, quite proudly, biracial. I have, however, traveled in white spaces much easier than Latinx spaces. This reality stems from growing up in a very white town, spending my college and adult life in very white spaces as well but also because this is where I've been more accepted and socialized. So let me break that down further. My Mexican, Mayan, Native American, Iberian descendant father grew up in a time when his skin color, his Mexican accent, and his bilingualism was viewed inferior. 
My father spent his whole life fighting his inferiority complex, and he worked ambitiously to assimilate 100% to the American-European culture. My dad may not have been cognizant of the American caste system, as explained in Isabel Wilkerson's book, Caste, The Origins of Our Discontent, but he did understand that his white children stood a better chance in white spaces in the colored-driven hierarchy in America if our complexion was lighter than his and if we did not have the accent that he had. And so my father, in the 1960s, intentionally sought out my mother, who was a very white Protestant woman. My father quickly married her, and of his five children, he managed to score three children who looked just like me. We had very blonde hair, blue eyes, and pale white skin. The first two siblings of mine, the elder two, had brown hair, brown eyes, but light complexion. They were able to pass for Spanish-European, so they moved safely in white spaces. Much to my dad's delight, we all could navigate the American caste system with greater ease than he was able to before his passing four years ago. I wish to also note my two brown hair and brown eyed siblings of mine were safe in my dad's family spaces too. They were accepted with open arms and ample love by his Hispanic family, whereas the rest of us, including my mother, were outwardly ostracized and unwelcomed. We didn't fit in with them either. And outside of my dad's family, the brown eyes and brown-haired siblings did not fit in well in what should have been our Latinx community. Collectively, my siblings and I traveled more harmoniously with white folks. But really, none of my dad's children ever felt like we were 100% with our people while we were growing up. Mexican last name, but didn't speak the native language. Mexican last name, so not fully white. That was our status. We were children without a true identity, no real in-group. We simply did not have a clear ethnic identity group. That's just reality. Did we feel the effects of racism, or as Wilkerson states, the caste system that is ever-present in America? Of course we did. But I cannot say that my life has been harshly impacted by these micro and macro aggressions, but they certainly did not go unnoticed, especially when offered by my dad's side of the family. The rejection of your own bloodline is an unspeakable loss. Throughout this world, race, racism, has evolved into such a complicated dynamic. Though our race is just a bunch of DNA doing its thing to offer a blueprint for how we look, Attributing actions as a result of this encoding, this mentality never ceases to perplex me completely. This is especially true when the macroaggressions come from my own blood relations. Which brings me to today's podcast, my thoughts post my interview with my beautiful and caring daughter, Justice, which is the topic of today's episode. I hope my words move your allyship forward and they enjoy my thoughts. Before we begin this episode, let's hear from our partner and sponsor, the Solid Lotion Bar Company. Today's episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Solid Lotion Bar Company. If your skin, much like our nation, is in need of repair and uplifting, check out Solid Lotion Bar Company. Handcrafted in small batches, we make solid lotion bars that melt into moisturizing lotion. With many scents to choose from, there is a solid lotion bar for everyone. Please visit www.solidlotionbar.com and purchase your Justice Bar today. 
where proceeds will be directed to local racial and social justice charities as we stand together for lotion and justice for all. Now, here's our episode. We hope you enjoy it. I recently had the epiphany that my understanding about racism is vastly different than many white people's understanding. This is probably due to my biracial, non-true identity status, but for whatever reason, that statement remains true. In some of my white social circles, I'm still hearing folks say, racism is not that bad. America is not racist anymore. The media makes it seem worse than it is. I've even heard, I don't see racism. I finished that statement with, in your very white spaces. Of course you don't. I ask, what do your friends who are not white think about your statement? Of course, after usual awkward silence, I then ask them to explain to me how so many people of color are afraid of police and are harmed by police, percentage-wise, at a much higher rate than the overall population. Could white people really believe that people of color are more likely to have criminal tendencies? Or could racial bias and just plain old racism be a systematic problem? So, after my conversation with Justice, I wanted to delve into my thoughts and, of course, what I wish I had said at the time of our interview. Hindsight brings me to these thoughts in this moment of time. I want to frame my thoughts around stop and frisk, which was legalized in 1968, but it was more recently attributed to the New York Police Department tactic used under Mayor Rudy Giuliani from 1994 to 2001, and then Mayor Michael Bloomberg from 2002 to 2013. Pretty recent, right? Throughout the state of New York, stop and frisk was said to be used as a means to prevent crime. Police would see what they perceived as suspicious behavior, and they would frisk to see if they could find any reason to arrest their citizens. What a disaster this program was, actually, I should say is. Guess who police thought were suspicious? Of course, people of color. You knew that before I even said it. In fact, According to the Civil Liberties Union, between 2003 and 2013, under Bloomberg's watch, over 100,000 stops were made per year, with 685,724 people being stopped at the height of the program in 2011. The program became the subject of racial profiling. 90% of those stopped in 2017 were African American or Latino mostly between the ages of 14 and 24. 70% of those stopped were later found to be innocent. By contrast, 54% of the population in New York in 2010 was African American or Latino. However, 75% of individuals arrested were of those two racial groups. So, when police officers go looking for crime, they look to people of color. In a recent study, the Civil Liberties Union also found African Americans are incarcerated in state prisons at a rate that is 5.1 times the imprisonment of whites. In five states, Iowa, Minnesota, New Jersey, Vermont, and Wisconsin, the disparity is more than 10 to 1. In 12 states, more than half of the prison population is black. Alabama, Delaware, Georgia, Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, Michigan, Mississippi, New Jersey, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. 
Maryland, whose prison population is 72% African-American, tops the nation. In 11 states, at least 1 in 20 adult black males is in prison. States exhibit substantial variations in the range of racial disparity from a black-white ratio of 12.2 to 1 in New Jersey, and in Hawaii, it's 24 to 1. Latinos are imprisoned at a rate that is 1.4 times the rate of whites. Hispanic, white ethnic disparities are particularly high in states such as Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and New York. Here are some super important statistics. America's overall population breakdown, 62% white, 13% black, and 17% Hispanic. Compare that to the incarceration rate. So either one assumes people of color are inherently bad, or you must realize there is racism in America, most notably in the police and judicial systems. In Wilkerson's book, she speaks of the underlying pervasive and toxic racism that arrived to America in a caste system. Although many of us may not knowingly act racist or do not see racism in our bubbles, that does not mean that it doesn't exist. Wilkerson argues, what is lurking will fester whether we choose to look or not. Ignorance is no protection from the consequences of inaction. Whatever you're wishing away will gnaw at you until you gather the courage to face what you would rather not see. So yes, on the very foundation upon which America was built, racism is festering. Racism still today most certainly exists, which is how the police very public execution of George Floyd took center stage. Did you know during the shelter-in-place orders, black folks were still harmed by the police at the same high rate as any other statistical time? The murdering of George Floyd was just the tip of the iceberg. There is no coincidence that the majority of people harmed during stops or arrests are people of color. It's the festering racism. Contrast this fact to their white counterparts, such as Dylan Stormroof. Roof is a self-proclaimed American white supremacist who, on June 17, 2015, in South Carolina, opened fire and went on a murdering spree at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church during a Bible study. After being welcomed with open arms, a loving service, Roof opened fire upon an innocent group of African American worshipers. After his murder spree, Roof fled the scene. A pursuit ensued, and a day later, Roof was arrested and without harm. In fact, the officers picked up Burger King for this mass murder. Roof was not just looking suspicious. He was armed and dangerous, and he is a mass murderer. Now, let's contrast this cold-blooded mass murderer's harmless arrest to a black person pulled over just for speeding. First, let's be real. Most drivers speed. For most of us, every time we drive, at some point, we're breaking driving laws. Now imagine always being pulled over for these minor few miles over the speed limit infractions. Now imagine further being asked to get out of the car and then seriously harmed because you were driving 40 miles per hour in a 35-mile zone. And now imagine this becoming a death sentence because you didn't fully cooperate as you were pleading for your rights. Those rights ultimately leading to you having to plead for your very own life. For many white folks, you still can't believe this happens. You just don't see it or believe it. 
but it does. And even if it doesn't happen to a person of color today or tomorrow, the threat and the pervasive fear is carried with people of color every day. They live with the fear of losing their life, but the very hands of the people, their taxes pay to serve and to protect them. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't believe that all police officers are horrible and racist, just as I don't believe that all people are horrible and racist. Most are not, but a toxic culture in far too many police departments has prevailed. Often the police officers go unchecked and in the sheriff's departments. Moreover, they're often celebrated. If you do not want to acknowledge that racism exists and is harmful in America, then you, like the few bad apples, in the police force, are perpetrating the racism in America. As Wilkerson suggests, we got to dig deep and eradicate all the racism from the very roots of our American soil, like the toxic anthric pathogens in the berry tundra of Russia, which was recently released and were harming communities. As written in her book, we must incarcerate the toxins, in this case racism, at up to 500 degrees Celsius, then douse the cinders and surrounding land with bleach to kill the spores to protect the people going forward. I've hoped I painted a clear picture revealing that racism is a part of the fabric of American culture, just as ever enduring as the colors in the fabric of the American flag. And just because you don't see it doesn't mean that racism does not continue to plague this nation. Because it does. America still has a long way to go before living up to the very tenets we citizens cling to as a means to justify our country's exceptionalism. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in a system that is plagued by racism simply cannot exist for all. If you think of yourself as a caring person, this cannot be acceptable to you. If you think of yourself as a person of faith, such as a Christian, then racism cannot be acceptable to you as it goes against what has been reported to be holy or Christian-like. If you think of yourself as intellect, ignoring the facts about America's racist history and present, well, this goes against an intelligent person's need for evidence-based facts. If you think of yourself as an American, then you know all about slavery, and you know that America has never really done that needed work to completely eradicate this pervasive and pernicious caste-driven and hateful belief system that a human being, by the very nature of skin color, is inherently better or worse. And if you think racism is magically going to disappear, without all of us doing some work to make it happen. History has proven that this thinking is wishful thinking at best and negligent at worst. And if you think one race is inherently prone to crime, here's what researchers think. Pat Sharkey had to say this about his findings. Exposure to violence can create trauma and responses to trauma in the brain and throughout the body that impact someone for a lifetime. This really shows that trauma caused by exposure to violence in childhood can really have a direct impact on a child's ability to concentrate, focus, and perform in school. If they can't perform in school, they can't really impact their future earnings later on in life. And so exposure to violence can really limit poor children's ability to escape from poverty. So what we should be hating on are those well-honed and deeply entrenched systems in place that create poverty 
not the color of a person's skin. Skin color is biology. It is not destiny. Poverty is a societal problem, and that we can fix together, right? If we really want to feel safe, how about that? What if our police officers help to fight poverty? Personally, I like the sound of that. I want to be clear, I'm not for abolishing the police and the criminal justice system writ large. But I do love the idea of reimagining how great these civil servants can be for our collective society. Reconstruction of these antiquated systems, that is what I am very much in favor of. Imagine what a police and judicial department could be for all citizens. One where social services are called when needed, and all our officers are trained to de-escalate situations. One where more money is used to properly train officers than is currently used to settle civil excessive force lawsuits and police brutality lawsuits. Can we work together to create a police force in which good and prudent officers are the models, not the marginalized? I could go on and on, but you get the picture. So for now, in addition to funding the criminal justice system more humanistically, I have a few suggestions that we should explore in our own lives. One, if you believe racism exists, start having difficult conversations. Let people know that you know racism and its harmfulness is still festering in America. Let people know that you're not okay with it. Don't nervously laugh at racist jokes or ignore comments or microaggressive behaviors against people of color. Although it's not easy, do not allow racist acts to go unchecked on your watch. If you see something, say something. Acknowledging racism is important. If you believe racism is wrong, you must not tolerate it any longer. Two, if you still have doubts about the existence of racism, talk to people who believe or who have lived experience that suggests otherwise. Read literature and watch content from which you can learn. Three, no matter your stance, talk to people outside your white spaces. Hear their stories. You got to care for other people's humanity, especially if you don't see the harm they have endured in their past or the fear they feel every day. Four, diversify your social portfolio, just as our guest author Lisa Ramey suggested. Get out of your circle of sameness and learn about others who don't look, sound, or even believe the same as you. I can confidently say in all my walks of life, it is safe to employ the 80-20 rule. 80% of all humanity is just like you, caring, loving, and worthy of love. Yes, there is that 20% out there, not as easy to love, but easily feared. But their criminal tendencies are not due to the color of their skin. Most likely it's due to mental illness and or not so favorable life circumstances, such as a racist judicial system. So go, go out and explore the many diverse offerings of this great world. You will be amazed by how wonderful most people are. And you'll also find that these people will come in all shapes, sizes, and colors, as beautiful as a rainbow. Lastly, five, as Gandhi urged us all, be the change you want to see in the world. Let's all try and live each day trying to be better for one another, especially for the children who don't have anything to do with racism until it is thrust upon them. In closing, I wish to read from Wilkerson's concluding words in her book, In a world without caste, Instead of a false swagger over our own tribe or family or ascribed community, we look upon all of us 
we look upon all of humanity with wonderment. The life beauty of an Ethiopian runner, the bravery of a Swedish girl determined to save the planet, the brilliance of a composer of Puerto Rico descent who can wrap the history of the founding of America at 144 words a minute. All of these feats should fill us with astonishment at what this species is capable of and the gratitude to be alive for this. In a world without caste, be a male or female, light or dark, immigrant or native-born, would have no bearing on what anyone was perceived of as being capable of. In a world without caste, we would all be invested in the well-being of others in our species, if only for our own survival, and recognize that we are in need of one another more than we have ever been led to believe. We would join forces with indigenous people around the world, raising an alarm as fires rage and glaciers melt. We would see that when others suffer, the collective human body is set back from the progression of our species. Folks, the reality is, a world without caste would set everyone free. have sparked at least one aha moment and that you will help us to keep this powerful human rights movement going. We hope you opt to be an ally, accept, learn, listen, and that you take action and demand social justice. And now, as I close out this episode, I want to remind you all to stand out, be a solid ally, and to purchase your Solid Lotion Bar Justice products. Remember, all proceeds are being donated to organizations fighting racial injustice. So visit www.solidlotionbar.com and order your Justice Lotion Bar today. And lastly, I'm pleading with you, Louisville, Kentucky's judicial system, arrest the criminals who murdered Breonna Taylor. Pod save the rest of us listeners. Thank you for tuning in and becoming a solid ally. We hope you enjoyed this episode, which was engineered and produced by Elizabeth Stanley, Karen Castro, and Robert Stanley. We want to thank our guest, whose open and honest responses shaped an informative and empathetic episode. As always, we need to thank our fantastic Pod Say the Rest of Us listeners. Your support means so much to us. Additionally, we need to thank the many people who have made it possible for us to stand out. This includes our great ally team, Crystal, Ed, Jill, Justice, Rodney, Tina, and the Solid Lotion Bar Company. Also, a special thanks to Keith Ramey for his informative voiceover work. As always, we need to thank our musical genius team, Hunter Lewis, Danny Burns, Alejandro Mescua of Drill Beats, and Robert Stanley. We also need to thank Justice for web and social media content, Jasmine Smith for her web design work and production support, St. Hall for graphic artwork and our sponsor and contributor, the Solid Lotion Bar Company. If you wish to find us, you can do so on our website at podsavetherestofus.com as well as on Instagram at podsavetherestofus or on Twitter at savetherestofus. We'd like to remind you to subscribe, 
rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. As you know, this helps us grow and reach more listeners and gain more allies. And as always, Pod Save the Rest of Us listeners, thank you for tuning in. Sweet.